Having no direct correlation to the readings this week, I think it would be helpful to begin by talking about prophets in the Bible. They're all over the place. We've got former, we've got latter, we've got minor and major, and all the classifications I just mentioned really only cover those prophets who have books of the Bible named after them. Within several of these books, we have even more alleged prophets, some who end up being true prophets and some who end up being false prophets. Let me give you one such example. In the time of the book of Jeremiah, God's people had been taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Not great news, as we all should well know. Here's the thing, though. A prophet named Hananiah pops up and says, God told me to tell you. By the way, every sort of prophet always says this. God told me to say this. They're not always right. Anyway, Hananiah pops up and says, God told me to tell you that God has broken the yoke of the king of Babylon and is going to put everything back within two years. A bold claim, but God told him. There is a problem, though. By the way, you can see all this go down in Jeremiah 28. Here's the problem. Jeremiah, you know, the one with the book named after him? Gee, I wonder who's going to win this. Jeremiah says, hold up, God told me that's not true. To be more precise, I'd like to read Jeremiah's response, and I'll try to read it dripping with as much sarcasm as Jeremiah would appear to have here. So remember, Hananiah has said that Nebuchadnezzar is basically already beaten and everything will be back the way it was within two years. And here's how Jeremiah responds. Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words that you have prophesied. And bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. But listen now to this word that I speak in your hearing and then in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes true, Then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Now, since this particular passage isn't directly related to our readings this week, let me make this story short. Further reading shows Jeremiah's prophecy is that the people of God are supposed to actually serve Nebuchadnezzar for a time. Deliverance is not coming that fast. We come to find out Hananiah was wrong. Then we come to find out, as all false prophets do, Ananiah dies, relatively shortly after this. I'd like to sum up this quick story in the way my former Old Testament professor said it to us. How do you tell a false prophet from a real prophet? A real prophet's prophecies come true. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy.
Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Several listeners use it to begin to prepare for the texts on the coming Sunday, and others use it in a more personal way. The distinctive here is that I try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt, which I believe to be a crucial function in spiritual formation. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. In the beginning, I let us down that partially tangential path for a reason. Although I've invoked a passage that isn't in our list today, a passage that is in our list will require us to have some idea of what a prophet does. So we will have to, you know, deconstruct prophecy. Because if we zoom out even more and look at several discrepancies between true and false prophets, we will see patterns begin to emerge. I think it might be helpful to know some of these patterns before we get into the readings this week. So here they are. The prophetic function is usually to show you a different perspective than the one you are seeing. Our specific case in Jeremiah is a great example of this. Both prophets come along to remind the people who are now under the control of the Babylonians that their identities are not that of Babylonians, but still of the chosen people of God. So both Hananiah and Jeremiah have actually served a prophetic function. But then, we're called to explore some more nuance. And this is where we see a second major difference between false and true prophets. The first being that true prophets' prophecies come true. Although prophets don't always come to give bad news, a false prophet will often offer salvation or comfort or peace, etc. far too early and without associated action. So many, 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 many times the false prophet will say, God is here to save you. Whereas the true prophet will say, indeed, God is coming to save you. And while you wait, there's some self-reflection and perhaps some action that needs to happen. So Hananiah's message to announce is within two years, everything will be back to normal. But Jeremiah's message is, God said you didn't listen to everything God said to do like taking care of the orphan, the widow, the stranger, and so on. So you're going to have to chill and serve the king of Babylon for a while while we work this stuff out. Now, this isn't the lesson today, but I'm hoping keeping this example in mind will help us get to the lesson today. So for now, let's turn to the readings this week. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and verses 17 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, 
No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. God brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then God said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought God all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites. Psalm 27 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in God's temple. For God will hide me in God's shelter. In the day of trouble, God will conceal me under the cover of God's tent. God will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up, above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in this tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek God's face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of His glory, by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord.
We were cruising along quite smoothly through those readings until we got to the gospel passage this week. We started with a story about how Abram believed Yahweh who would provide an heir for him. By the way, something of note there. This is sort of the, one of the first times in scripture where something like faith or belief is something that receives some amount of credit. What I mean is, God calls Abram's belief righteousness, which was a term that was previously reserved for describing actions. But that's not the particular can of worms we're opening this week, so I just wanted to highlight it as we move past it. So then we moved into a nice psalm about God being our stronghold and refuge. The Philippians passage could have been off-putting, but as long as you think other people are the ones that live as enemies of the cross of Christ, you know, devils, call back, then it shouldn't trip you up too bad. But then we come to this odd gospel passage. I'm not the only one that thinks it's odd. I checked. It's odd for several reasons. Jesus comes out pretty hot at Herod. Not that it's undeserved and not that there's anything wrong with that. The tone just gives the reader a little hiccup. Even though I think the Pharisees are sometimes too quickly dismissed as just being the bad guys, it is quite uncharacteristic that they are the ones concerned with Jesus' safety. Another thing I don't love doing is reading some sort of mood onto a character when I don't have any indication of such mood. For example, I'm trying really hard to avoid assuming Jesus is agitated here because I really don't have any evidence to suggest that. My feeling might better be described as something like unexpected turbulence on a smooth flight. No, the plane certainly isn't going down, but I've definitely looked around to see if anyone else is worried. What is this feeling? Well, not to speak for anyone else, but I would think that anyone who has done some deep reading and research into the prophets gets a little pit in their stomach whenever they're invoked. Perhaps it would be helpful to be more specific. There's something about the prophets to someone with a long history as a worship leader. You say prophet and I hear, I hate your worship services. I mean that in a really good way. I don't have any shame associated with those words, but they and other words like them are always right there with me. It's also a little less personal. It's not, Anthony, I hate your worship services. It's, hey, don't forget, I'm prone to not prefer your consumeristic urges in worship planning. So the nausea isn't associated with shame, but it is associated with, I was cruising along and I hit a pothole which turned the wheel only a little bit, but it made me aware that I'm currently in control of a giant hunk of metal that is balancing on four balloons barreling down the highway at 80 miles an hour. So you know, it may not be necessary for you to pull the car over and never drive again, but it's also not bad to be reminded that this thing isn't going to drive itself. Plenty of intention is required. That felt very similar to what happened over the course of these readings. Reading number one, yes, remember, God will do what God promised. How comforting. Reading number two, God protects me. Reading number three, imitate Christ. A bit of a challenge, but pretty standard stuff. Reading four, hey, Jesus, Herod is coming to kill you. Tell that fool, I'm just going to continue to do what I do. Then boom, a lament, Jerusalem, why do you kill everyone who's trying to help you? Now, over the course of this episode, I've expanded our purview this this week because I think the prophets are a massive help during Lent. But let me start by looking at a couple things Jesus does here. By most accounts, and that is most accounts I ran across, this passage is definitely weird, like I said. Most people aren't really sure what to do with it. 
For example, I have no idea why the Pharisees are trying to help Jesus. Perhaps they are just trying to settle their disagreement with Jesus a little more amicably at this point. Maybe if they get him nervous, he'll cool it. But I actually think most people move beyond the weirdness of this passage by just pointing out that Jesus is predicting his death. Jesus says Jerusalem kills prophets. Jesus is, at least partially, a prophet, and he will eventually die. So this is just a moment for him to be able to predict that. Although it's worth noting, since the author of this gospel at very least wrote it 40 years after Jesus' death, it's probably more about the author himself having the opportunity for this prophecy. But I digress. Maybe it is that easy. But when it's that easy, we're offered an even better opportunity for wrestling. Jesus laments the fact that Jerusalem kills prophets. They have definitely literally done that, and also will literally kill this one too. But during this Lenten season, I wonder if this is an opportunity for us to learn a broader lesson, over and above just some historical fact. Literally speaking, Jesus is hearkening back to the time when the prophets would speak and the people just wouldn't listen. Not only that, but the people not listening is often what got them into the situations they were in. At least according to the prophets, Judah was in Babylonian captivity because of their own actions, not because of Babylon's actions. So, quite functionally, Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, y'all never listen, and here it is happening again. But I also think there's something more specific happening here. Do you remember how Hananiah was offering easy salvation and Jeremiah said, No, we have some stuff to fix first. Israel and Judah, you have drifted from your original covenant with God and from your calling. In the language of the prophets, the assumption was, if Israel and Judah wouldn't have drifted, then God would have protected them from Babylon. In the gospel passage today, Jesus is doing the work of the kingdom of God and the Pharisees come along and say, Hey friend, you better run and preserve yourself. Herod is coming. And in that moment, Jesus becomes Israel and Judah. Do I drift from my mission for the sake of self-preservation? And finally, someone learns the lesson of this roller coaster of scripture. Jesus chooses to remain on mission. So Jesus says Jerusalem kills its prophets. Like I said, That has been literally true, and as we know from the end of this story, it will literally be true again with Jesus. However, I'd like to talk about this idea figuratively as we sit in the middle of this Lenten season. I know the last couple years could be summed up as, we have all been doing what we need to do. I have no judgment for that. But I noticed a trend, and part of the reason I noticed it is because I did it myself. As we withdrew from more and more in-person interaction, we escaped into digital relationships. And of course, digital relationships are far more toxic than in-person ones. So out of self-preservation, we started to curate our interactions. We were assisted in this task by the algorithms of all the technology companies, which have been proven over and over again to show us what makes us angry because anger holds our attention longer than happiness. Of course, this divide spilled into our real-life interactions, too. And here's what happened. We started killing our prophets. Now, of course, I'm looking at this in a more relativistic sense, as I'm prone to do. But I would argue it carries at least as much weight, if not more. 
There is the narrow definition of a prophet, which is one who shares something they claim God told them, and it predicts something that will happen in the future. But there's also this broader definition of a prophet, one who shows you a world that is counter to your reality. We love the first definition in regards to Jesus. It's nice and tidy. God will save you and you will have eternal life. We don't tend to love the second definition in regards to Jesus, the one that presents a different kingdom. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And so I think we have to at least wrestle with the message behind the passage in today's gospel reading. Stop killing prophets. Stop removing yourself from those who you disagree with. Stop withdrawing into echo chambers. The only path to the alternate reality, the better path, is revealed by the words of someone you disagree with in your present reality. In other words, I'm not sure growth is possible without your prophets. So stop killing them. Ah, yes, but of course there is one more thing. Because if I leave it right there, I've opened up a massive possibility for abuse. And one that's been exploited many times in the past by the church anyway. So if nothing else, I would just be thoroughly unoriginal. Let me draw your attention to what I didn't say. I didn't say we need to obey our prophets. I said don't kill them. This is why I spent so much time at the beginning of the episode outlining the function of a prophet. What do you call a real prophet? A prophet. What do you call a false prophet? A prophet. Prophet is a job. It's a function. But prophets aren't psychics. Prophets help us to see what we weren't looking at before. That doesn't mean we unquestioningly follow the instructions of someone just because they said God told them something. That's called a cult. We must follow Jesus' implication in this passage to stop killing our prophets, but we also absolutely must thoughtfully engage with the words that break us out of our settled patterns of thinking and living. Not in a way that destroys our personhood or our self-confidence, but in a way that leads to awareness of areas for growth. This is certainly an aspirational idea, but imagine if we could have a Lent where we removed fear and we removed anger and we removed shame. If we saw repentance as an opportunity rather than a punishment. In that world, we would be able to hear all the words of the different prophets roaming around out there. Some of the words would quickly fall to the ground as harmful or ridiculous. Some would quickly nourish the seed of growth in our lives. And some we will continue to wrestle with as we always have. But we have to stop killing our prophets. The Bible would have been about one-tenth shorter if they wouldn't have killed theirs. But don't just do what they say either. We live in the middle. See if you can listen to what they say without feeling like the eight-year-old who snuck the cookie from the cookie jar. That does it for this week's episode. 
I really feel like the way I went this week could have been a trigger for shame. So I would love to suggest finding a counselor or mental health professional in your area to talk to. That really just applies to everyone. Because sometimes when we're talking about applying biblical principles to modern day life, we're just on a whole different level. If I'm talking about the prophets of Diaspora Israel, we might be talking about maybe like 40 to 60,000 people hearing from a large number of prophets. Not millions. Not with TV pundits and social media. I guess, in the end, the greatest tool for the lesson this week is discernment. But it's difficult for a podcast host to help with that. But regular practice for a counselor. Thanks again for joining me this week. If you'd like to continue talking about this topic, or if you'd like to stay informed about what's going on with Postmodern Liturgy, you can join me online at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Postmodern Liturgy. And I used to have a Facebook site, but it was apparently hacked and stolen, and I don't have control anymore. I'm working on that. Thanks again. See you next week. And as always, enjoy the tension.